another edition of the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman, and we have a very big episode for you today. A little bit later, I'll be talking to Oliver Studd, a buddy of mine over in the UK. He's going to talk about his uh, crypto project that he's building and why that's happening and how you can get involved. Uh, but before we get to Oliver, I want to tell you about a very important story hot off the press, and it's to do with a tall building going up in Australia. And this is really interesting for me. I've followed uh, these projects for a very long time. And the reason being is there's something called the Skyscraper Index, which is uh, uh, an idea behind it is that throughout history, the tallest buildings, record high buildings, have historically opened in recession. Uh, for example, the, the, the Empire State Building opened in the middle of the Great Depression in New York in 1932, I think it was. Uh, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai opened in 2009 at the height of the GFC. Uh, the towers, I think they're called the Petrobras Towers. Maybe that's wrong. can't remember. But in Malaysia, they opened in 1998, which was the Asian financial crisis. Anyway, there's lots of examples all the way back to around 1837. So I'm always on the lookout for tall building projects. And lo and behold, we have one here. So this, let me read you a bit from the Australian Financial Review. Uh, Australia's tallest building project, two towers to be constructed at South Bank, overlooking the Melbourne CBD, is gaining momentum with the selection of Four Seasons to operate an upmarket hotel in the $2.7 billion development. Dot, dot, dot. The hotel on the 63rd floor is expected to open its doors for its first guests by 2028. Bada boom. Now that date jumps out of me. Um, in a big way because the property cycle I write about with Catherine Cashmore, we have the next big downturn pegged for that date as well. So that uh, tower, if it all goes ahead, theoretically will open in a recession, just like every other tall building in, in history or, or the majority of them, I should say. So that is a very effective timing tool based off history to suggest that the property cycle, A, will keep running for another couple of years and B, should top out, top out according to the timing that we write about over at CT and F. So you can read about the skyscraper index. You go and Google it. You'll see all the different examples throughout it and keep an eye out uh, if you see any more. It doesn't have to be Australia. It's a global cycle now. So I'd expect to see more record buildings come out um, and strangely enough, a couple of years ago, it was quite a long time ago, I'd say at least six years ago, there was a, a, the idea that there was going to be this massive tall building go up in Iraq of all places. So keep, keep, your, keep your eyes out. Um, could be in the Middle East, could be in America, Europe. We're going to see more for sure because these things usually become competitive as cities compete to be the world's tallest building. Just as a side note, I went to the top of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai Um back in I don't know, a couple of years ago now and it was actually kind of boring it cost me like 150 bucks or something to go to the top and i made the mistake of going in the daytime and then i got to the top and all i could see was some you know buildings down below and lots of desert <laughs> then you get out there and go oh right okay yeah i've seen it now um, well and they gave me a little jar of orange juice so there's better ways to spend 150 bucks than that in my opinion anyway keep an eye out for tall buildings now the connection to oliver well his project is about the banking system and the credit they create. One of the things about this project is that it tells us that the developers think they can finance it. So they either have to raise it in the bond markets or via the banking system uh, through loans and, and such. So those that assess this have to think it's viable, at least today, based off the future cash flows that it will generate through rents, et cetera. 
So when banks make loans, the question becomes, where is that money going? Generally, here in Australia, as in the UK, we pump it into the housing market and it jacks it up um, with all the consequences that brings. It's not a productive use of the banking system. They should be investing in green technology, companies, things that create jobs and income. So uh, Oliver and his colleague, who is, in my opinion, the best economist in the world, Richard Werner, are trying to build community banks that invest in productive things that creates wealth and can reinvest in the community. And they're going to use the crypto market to try and do it. So here's Oliver to tell us all about it. All righty, as I alluded to earlier, we've got Oliver on uh, from over in the UK. Before we dig into the crypto project that you're building, can you, you, you study with a man called Professor Richard Werner, who in economics is an outlier, but in my mind is the best ec- economist uh, alive today that I know of. And this, in a sense, is the background to what you're doing now. So can you just tell us a little bit about the Wernerian economic model that dominates uh, his work and, in your view, the financial system as it were? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've, I've been working with Richard for a couple of years now across the board. Um, I studied under him at university. Um, and I like to call myself a Wernerian economist. Um, so Richard... Uh, invented the quantity theory of credit, originally called the quantity theory of disaggregated credit. Um, He also coined the term quantitative easing, actually, which is now being misused by the central banks. Um, But this theory is effectively about how banks create credit out of nothing. They create money out of nothing. Um, And he argued this in the 90s, in the early noughties, and then in the 2014, he produced the first empirical test to disprove what the central banks were saying, that banks were financial intermediaries, And he proved that by looking at actually a balance sheet and the accounting practices of a a bank when he took out a loan, um, he proved that money was created out of thin air. No money was transferred from one person's account to another. Um, And therefore, the the belief that banks are merely financial intermediaries and aren't important in any model was incorrect. Just let me jump in there and say that economics teaches that banks lend deposits or traditional economics. And most people think that when they put it in the, the bank, that the, the bank then goes and lends out those deposits. That's not what happens, is it? Well, so financial intermediation basically treats a bank the same as any other company um, and says that um, they're not important in any model. And if you put money into a bank, yes, they use that and they lend it out. Um, and it's sort of like a mixture, really, is that banks are different to any other company because they're exempt from something called client money rules, at least in the, uh, in the UK, they're called client money rules. Uh, they don't have to segregate customer accounts to their own business account. Um, so you can't tell the difference between, on a balance sheet, the bank's money, if you like, the liabilities and, and you know your deposit, my deposit, et cetera, um, whereas other firms would have to do that. And therefore, whenever they lend out um, a loan, they effectively lengthen the balance sheet and create an additional deposit on the liability side, which wasn't there before. Well, no one's deposited that money. That credit has just been produced. No deposit goes down on the liability side. No account is reduced. It just increases. It lengthens. Um, And that's effectively the money creation process. And then when that money is transferred to another bank, that bank gains the deposit. So the money is still being created, even when the cash supply of the first one goes down. Um, It still then lengthens the balance sheet overall because the deposits Mm. go up on another bank. So that's effectively how bank credit creation works. It's just financial intermediation basically says that that lengthening doesn't happen it immediately is just lent out and 
you know, cash supply goes down, deposits doesn't doesn't go up. And so the implications from that become huge because where the banks are lending their money is obviously pumping new money into wherever that goes. So, and this is the great thing about uh, Richard Werner's work. Um, if you're if you're somebody trying to make sense of the economy and you don't understand this point, you're never going to work out what's going on. So one of the things, and here in Australia, same in the UK, what do most banks lend to? They lend to property. So we get high property mm. prices and that's where you get the boom bust cycle or part of where we get the boom bust cycle um, because that is ultimately not a productive thing uh, to create credit against, is it? So that's the, the feature of the boom bust cycle and why we go up and go down all the time. Yeah, so there's two types of credit creation. You've got unproductive credit creation, which leads to boom bust cycles, and productive credit creation, which is lending to a real economy, creating new income streams. And banks, unfortunately, um, they like to make money. Um, and if regulators allow them to or you know, guide them into doing that, and they're more likely to lend for financial speculate, uh, you know, spec financial speculation, um, which is unproductive credit creation because that can only be repaid and the loan to be repaid by asset prices going up, causing a bubble, um, capital gains, and therefore the loans repaid. However, that can't last forever. As soon as the banks stop creating that money and the tap turns off, the asset bubble bursts and you end up in a recession, uh, which is what happened uh, several times in the last um, you know, 100 years. It just keeps repeating itself. Um, but yeah, so Richard argues that if you instead focus on productive credit creation, which is still good, it's not a bad thing to create money out of nothing. Um, in fact, it fuels the economy. Um, so it's not a bad thing. It's just if you do it for the right reasons, which is lending to a real economy, lending into small businesses, then you get job growth, um, new income streams, you get investment in new technology, which makes things more efficient. So it's all positive things you get rather than just simply capital gains or speculation on the asset market. Yes, and the fascinating feature of history, which uh, Richard has talked about in his books, is that the Germans sort of set up this model and, and have done it very well. And then the Japanese came along later on and studied that and said, yeah, that makes sense. We'll use bank loans to build up industry. And then the other Asian tigers followed that. And that's sort of been the strength and later China of, of Asia. Um, now you bring your Valhalla network to the fore so tell us, what are you trying to do with this crypto project? Yeah, so Valhalla Network, um, Richard is the, he's the chair of it, if you like. Um, and I'm more the founder of a CEO trying to push it forward and do the day-to-day -day work. <laughs> um, what we're trying to do is set up a DAO, um, so a de decentralized autonomous organization um, that will be governed by token holders. Um, so a decentralized governance structure. Um, and the mission and the underlying mission of DAO is to establish and then own community banks all across the world, um, starting in Europe and then maybe in 10 years exploring you know, other continents and trying to grow out like that. Obviously, you don't want to run before you can walk. <laughs> um, and then effectively setting up these small local banks. Each one of these will focus on productive credit creation, lending to small businesses, which are currently underserved by uh, the big banks um, and ultimately leading to, you know, uh, less inequality and better um, quality of life. Why was why go through crypto? Why not establish a regular bank? Yeah, uh, well, we want to democratize the back end as well. 
So not only just have a decentralized banking structure, we wanted to decentralize the ownership structure as well um, and allow anyone to be able to make these decisions, um, put a transparency across there with proposals in. That's all on chain and is easily visible. Um, you've also got people being able to vote and kick out members of the team very easily. So I could easily be voted out um, by the governance token holders if they wanted to once it's all started up. So you reduce corruption. Um, and also, it's the fact that if these banks are for the public good and they're for the community, they should also be owned by you know, everyone in the world, really, anyone who wants to get involved and, and be a you know, governance holder. So it's, it's trying to stop people from being shut off. Um, and, and, that's, and that's pretty much it. It opens by tapping into distributed ledger technology and allowing for all that transparency and stuff. You open a whole new sort of possibilities for the community banking model. And do you still have to get a banking license from the regulators to set up yeah. this bank? Yeah, so we're not competing with banks um, or the banking industry as such. So a lot of crypto projects, DeFi product, uh, projects, their big issue is they're trying to compete with the banks. They seem to think that by doing DeFi um, with stable coins, et cetera, that they can just they can you know, beat the banks and no one needs to rely on banks. But that's simply not true because only banks can create money out of nothing. Otherwise, it's fraud. Well, it's illegal fraud. Banking is pretty much fraud anyway because you're creating money out of nothing, but it's illegal. Um, and that's the big difference. So by having a banking license, you are then able to take deposits and because you're exempt from client money rules, you can then create that money out of nothing and lend it out. Um, in DeFi, you, you can't create out of nothing. You can lend out. Um, so we're combining the two. We're combining the ethos of blockchain and distributed ledger technology of transparency and decentralization and less corruption with the banking system, which is so powerful because of the banking licenses they have. Don't you, but don't you need as a bank crazy amounts of capital? Isn't that the thing that always blocks startup banks? Is that they need like 50 million plus to just to start before they've even done anything? It well, it depends, on the <laughs> it depends on the jurisdiction. Not quite that much. I don't know anywhere where they require 50 million. Um, for example, our phase one bank, so there's two phases to our project um, on the banking side anyway, um, is to set up a for-profit phase one bank. Now, this is to um, allow the DAO to survive the early years, to support the DAO and the governance token holders in the early years by generating very high and sustainable cash flows that go into the DAO. Um, while that's happening and those cash flows are being generated by the phase one specialist bank, the phase two starts of setting up all these community banks that are not for profit, but they're still profitable, but they act not for profit. They act in the interest of the community, serving the clients rather than serving the shareholders. Um, so they take about four to five years to become profitable. So while they're being ramped up and becoming profitable, you've got the phase one bank. The phase one bank we're starting with, well, we're approaching the regulators with 20 million, but we will be starting it with 75 million. Um, but that's not the legal minimum. Um, we can start up a bank with 20 million in the uk you can start up a bank with sort of 10 million and you'll be okay um it's just yeah that's still a lot of money and it still means that you know it's it's difficult barrier to entry the big thing as well is how quick the regulators deal with you if you approach them with 10 million or the bare minimum um like 4 million or something which is like lithuania um they're more likely to take a while to deal with you they're not as interested you're not as a big fish you know you're not as serious but if you approach them with 20 million the regulators look at you and say, okay, well, they're serious about it. They're able to have more of an impact so we can look at them quicker. Um, so that's really the barrier to entry, but it's not quite 50 million. <laughs> <laughs> I did pull that figure out of uh, nowhere a little bit, <laughs> but I knew it was a lot of money. Um, it's just, it does seem crazy ambitious what you're trying to do because not only do you have to establish a bank, then you've got to find like 
you've got to get your brand or your marketing out there to find customers. Um, once you've got your license, and then you, I guess you go to what the the debt markets to like finance your loans down the track. Like it is a very complicated project you're you're going for here. Uh, yeah, well, we've got experience of setting up banks already in the UK. We've gone through the regulatory process, um, and it and you know in the UK the regulators are much more stringent than other um, areas. They're much more tough to deal with. Um, so you know the fact that we've gone through that process has set us up nicely for this um, for this challenge, if you like, for this mission. It certainly is a big sort of um we're aiming for the stars and if we hit the moon fantastic um sort of approach um you know if we can set up and have 10 banks in the network in six years that would still be a massive achievement to have um now obviously we would want more eventually and to ramp that up but these things take time you can't build a network like the sparkarsen which is the german community bank um, model and network you can't build that up in 10 years it takes a long time um and you don't want to make any mistakes and, and you know end up paying out loads of money and, and not getting much um, much of an impact from it. However, um, the good part about it is you don't burn much cash when you set up a bank. Um, by much, I, don't, I, I mean, you still burn millions, but you're not burning 20 million. So we're starting the first bank, the Series A anyway, and then Series B, we will be approaching the regulators with 20 million. But that 20 million isn't being spent. It's, it's there as bank equity because you need to have it there so regulators see that the bank can start up with this tier one capital, which is a regulatory um, capital that the bank has to have. Um, and, and therefore, it's, it's available to, to even go through the process. If you don't have that capital, regulators won't even look at you. Um, so you can't start the bank license application process. However, you're only burning about 2 million, 2.5 million um, actually to, to set up you know set up the entity set up the it get skeleton staff in um go through the, the fees go through auditing legal fees etc cetera, etc cetera. so you're only burning about 10 to 20 percent of the total amount that you raise which means that if you know this massive mission of ours for some reason you know it just it doesn't for, you know in two years it hasn't worked out or something like that we've still got 80 percent that we can then return um to to the investors so it's quite a Yes, it's a huge mission that we're setting out for, but it's relatively, compared to other crypto projects, it's relatively low risk um, because we're not burning capital. So when you talk about, so you've raised this money through the crypto world. Yeah. Who is it? Is it like wealthy individuals? Is it institutions? Where did you find people willing to invest in this project? Because it's a long <laughs> lead time. Remembering that the guy that, uh, release what is it a dogecoin or whatever did nothing but put the picture of a dog on it <laughs> and it went bananas like um how did you get in front of these people yeah so well right now the main investors aren't you know just crypto enthusiasts they've been um big fans of richard Werner and his work and fan, uh, fans of local first and what we're doing in the uk and people who want actually to make a difference they want to bring forward this ethical community banking approach that serves the community isn't acting in the interest of the shareholders only, but actually interest, you know, interested in, in the customer. So people like that, um, you've got private individuals who are who are wealthy. We've also got you know, a fund interested at the moment who are we're going through the process with them. Um, and again, they want to make a difference, have an impact. It's not just about making absolutely massive uh, returns because this is a governance token. It's not a security. It's something that gives you the rights or it doesn't give you legal rights, but because of how the DAO functions and how every DAO functions, governance token holders um, will be responsible for governing it, managing the treasury, uh, managing what you do with the money that comes in from all the banks and dividends. So 
you know, it's an interesting part, but there's no security element there. You know, it's not the That's investor shouldn't have that. I assume that when they, they bought in, they would get a token that was like, would eventually the dividends would flow for, there would be an equity stake. So you're saying this just gives them the right to be like on the board as such. It's a governance. We have to be careful here because of regu regulations, but it's not a security. So there's, there can't be an expectation of profit. Um, however, a governance token holder, out of any DAO, you're responsible for managing the treasury, managing um, what the DAO does, where it sets up these banks, um, who's involved in it, who's running it, um, who's involved in, in market. You know, you can pretty much, you're governing everything. If you vote something and it passes by the governance token holders, then it happens. Think of it as like a sovereign state whereby by being a token holder, you are like a citizen. It gives you, you know, rights to then vote on things and, and manage the, the state that's there. Um, Doesn't but, the complication you, come, though, that if just say you think as CEO that you should set up a bank in Bath, for example, in the UK, and then you've got all these people that have perhaps disparate different, different views. views and things, and, yep. and then suddenly it turns into this, dog's breakfast of like we you can't get any motion through <laughs> um, oh no so so there's always going to be some sort of majority vote um at the end of the day uh the people who are owning the governance token holders want it to be successful they want to see these community banks start up so unless it's a really bad proposal and it, there's no reason why a community bank should start there i wouldn't think anyone would purposely vote no again you know vote against it um and and try to stall the project and and you know stop it from going ahead um so I'm so assuming you, not most of those people will be, in a sense, passive. That they're they're willing to invest in the project, and they'll just sort of, you know, as you say, say yes to whatever you think is best for the network. Well, they'll they'll vote on what they believe is best, and that's the key part. Is it removes the corruption element, you know, because with power comes you know responsibility, and and a lot of people with power end up being corrupt. So by having a DAO, a decentralized vehicle, a decentralized company, if you like, um, a foundation. It removes that corruption element because it's all on chain. Everyone can see what decisions are being made. Everyone can see who's voting on what, um, what proposal has gone in. So if a proposal goes in and gets voted on, it passes, and then it doesn't get executed, that's a massive red flag. You know, everyone can see that that's happened. Um, everyone will be complaining about it. You know, that will effectively bring the, the project to a standstill. Um, so you don't want to do that. So you want to act in the best interest of the governance token holders at all times. You want to do what they tell you to do, because if you don't, the project won't, won't be as successful. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, everyone is an owner, if you like, of the DAO, um, just not in a legal security sense. You're just in a, everyone is in it together. I know, one, well, I, I believe that one of Richard Werner's concerns is that the central banks are going to release central bank digital currencies. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, they will essentially wipe out the private banking sector. Is that a risk to any bank, community bank, big bank, that that can happen? Yeah, it is. Uh, CBDCs are, you know, they're, they're coming, or it looks like they're coming anyway. Um, as with any regulation or any big thing like this, it's going to take many years to come through. Um, and the bank should be standing up against it. And I think they will. I think they'll come to realize that this is a massive risk to the, to the sector and to people's you know, sovereign, um, sovereign rights and, and people's liberties. Um, however, do I think it's going to wipe out the banking sector? No, because one, at the moment, they're looking, depending on which CBDC you look at, but some of them are hybrid approach where it still goes through the banking system. So the banks still take deposits. Um, others are looking at more of a centralized, sovereign style um, bank, which 
which will destroy the banking sector. It will lead to mass unemployment, um, mass insolvencies and, and bankruptcies of companies. Um, so, you know, if CBDCs are coming, it's a risk to everyone and it's a risk to every industry. It's not just the banking system. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be a while before them to come out. If they do come out, I think there'll be a big backlash and hopefully um, all the banks will stand up and say, no, this is wrong. However, that's more likely to happen if you've got a decentralized banking system with many small banks that then are engaged with the community, speaking to the community, everyone's more aware of what's happening. And then you've got many people standing up and saying no, rather than just trying to control and manipulate a few big banks where the CEOs can be you know, bought off maybe, um, or, or you know, something like that, where there's more chance of some sort of corruption. Um, if you've got many banks, it's harder to have that corruption. I know another big thing for Richard Werner is that low interest rates are, are put out as a as a <laughs> benefit for the community, as it were, or, or a stimulus for the economy at least. And he says, no, that's not true because it hurts banks, yeah, and it hurts their profitability and therefore their credit creation. It should be the other way. Um, yes. Can you now? I believe as what happens in that situation is banks um, where they can make money is in mortgages. It's more profitable than business loans. So they, they do a bias towards that sort of speculation, which we were talking about before. Is that going to be problematic if these interest rates continue to stay so low? For, well, for it looks a community minded bank. Yeah. So at the moment, it looks like the interest rates are going back up anyway, or sliding back up um, gradually. Um, yes, interest rates being low is, is a problem for a community bank, for any bank, it's a problem. Um, it doesn't mean you're not going to be profitable. It just means that you might not be as profitable, or it might just mean that you have to pass on slightly higher rates to, to your customers and the spread. You have to control that spread because a bank has to be profitable. Um, so the bank itself, although, yes, it will struggle a little bit, it will still survive. Um, it's just, it will mean that customers are affected and, you know, you can't do as much productive credit creation, like you said. Um, and actually low interest rates don't stimulate growth. They don't stimulate the economy. It's, it's nothing to do with interest rates, actually the economy. In fact, Richard's proven by looking at it and I was talking to, um, our CFO actually, Bucher today, um, the CFO of Valhalla Network about, um, uh, predicting yield of a 10 year bond based on nominal GDP. And what he's found is that, you know, like Richard says about interest rates actually lag growth, is that there's a correlation, a strong correlation between the 10-year nominal GDP growth and the 10-year um, treasury security um, yield, which means that actually the interest rate isn't affecting growth at all. It's the other way around. That if you have growth, the interest rates go up. If you have um, less growth, uh, interest rates end up coming down. Yes, it's so funny because it's such the opposite of what everybody says. And that's one of the great things about the body of work that Richard Wern has put together. It's just like you just do all these head slaps and you're like, how is it that the, the, the mainstream will tell you one thing and the complete opposite is true according to the evidence? And, uh, and all that well, he was that. doing that throughout the 90s as well, like in Japan. Um, it's quite a funny, funny table, actually, he showed me once um, in the Profit Research Center uh, was when he was saying one thing and the, the narrative was this, the mainstream narrative was this, and the result was always what Richard was saying. <laughs> um, and it, it was for, like that throughout the 90s in Japan. He said something, it was against the mainstream narrative, and he was right. Um, and it, it tends to be how it is. And that's why it took so long. And in the end, in 2014, he had to do that empirical test to say, actually, look, I know I'm right, I'm going to prove it. And when he proved it, then all the central banks started to say, 
oh, banks actually create credit out of nothing. We've, we've you know, that, yeah, we know that. And, you know, that's just coming to like now. We weren't trying to lie before. It's just, yeah, we, we now know it. Um, but yeah, Richard had to prove it and by doing an actual empirical test. Um, because they like to he, as brilliant as he is, there, there have been other writers and academics throughout history who have said this, that the banks yes. credit out of nothing. And then, but there was this other factors that said, no, no, this is how it works over here and, uh, and, that, and that type of thing. So once he sort of points out his work, he sort of leads the way. You can go back and see, oh, actually, you know, um, there are lots of economists that, that pointed well, out this. But he's sort of put it all together in a very yeah. unique framework for not only the banking system, but for what it means for the economy as well. Well, that's the big difference is that many economists have said banks create credit or create money, but they didn't know how it impacted the macro environment, how it impacted wider economy. Richard has put that together in his quantity theory of credit by saying they create money and how it's used, what it's created for has an impact on the economy. And by actually looking at this credit creation process, you can predict what market's going to do, whether you're going to have an asset bubble, whether it's going to burst. Um, and he put all that together in his theory. So yes, economists have said it before, but it's actually been Richard who's come together and put it together as one sort of complete theory. Absolutely. Just to swing back to the Valhalla network. So when you talk about that token, that's not something we can yet go to coinbase.com and see trading, right? Like it's <laughs> no, in the private no, no. hands of those investors. Uh, yeah, so the token doesn't actually exist yet. Um, it won't be minted until we go public. At the moment, we're in our Series A raise. Uh, we're in the last sort of 30, 30 to 40% of our Series A raise, um, coming along quite nicely. Um, so at the moment, it's it's people contacting me saying, look, I want to invest. This is how much I'm interested in. And then signing a simple agreement for future tokens. And then these contracts protect the investor. And when we mint the token in about a year's time, when we do the token generation event, that's when we go public and all the investors who have those SAFs who have paid and they've got a discount on the token because we give them a discount um, for, for um, investing now. Yep. They then get all those tokens that, um, that they bought at discount sent to their wallets. And then the other tokens that are minted and then sold to the public. And that's when you then do like a launch pool or you get put it on a centralized exchange or something like that, which is where you could then go up and, and buy it. So those government's tokens, they will be tradable when they go live? Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. So when it goes public, they're then tradable. So anyone can buy and sell. The, the investors can't. The in private sense, investors can't because they're, they're, they're vested. They're not equity in the company, but they, they, the token could still appreciate if if the crypto investor or the crypto market wants to drive the price of that thing up. Well, I've got to be careful because it's not I know you don't want to call it a security. <laughs> and, it's, and I can't put any expectation of profit across to anyone because then I'd be um, putting, you know, so I've got to be clear that I can't, you know, there's no expectation of profit. However, yes. the, the, the market might do it. People might see a demand for this. They might say that the staking rewards are, that are there, um, you know, starting with 5%, then in phase two going to 12.5%, but that's very attractive and they want to get in on that. Um, and they like the they like the, the you know participating in the DAO and deciding where community banks are set up and what the, what we do with the funds that come in. Um, they they might like that aspect. So therefore, the price yes, it might appreciate over time. You got to take one. Yeah, it, it could go down. And the mechanism we have is, and when we pay out these staking rewards in the token. So let's say you own five hundred governance tokens, uh, five hundred Valhalla Network tokens, and you it's a twelve point five percent return. So about 60 tokens, let's say. Um, so you get 60 tokens. The foundation, uh, the DAO, will then buy 60 tokens back from the market. 
with the cash that is received from the, you know, the dividends that come in from, from banks. Um, so we're controlling the supply like that. So just because we're giving staking rewards out, the supply won't be going up because then the foundation is buying them back at the same time. Um, but yeah, so people might like that and, and see, you know, a consistent interest rate, if you like, staking, staking rate, um, and they might like that. So one of the nice things about this is like in the crypto world, are we, you know, joke a little bit about Dogecoin and whatever it is and the stupidity yeah. of that thing going bananas. Mm -hmm. This is like a real project uh, and a real productive way of using this new industry to create something of what could be really cool, right? Oh, yeah, certainly, because then this can't be bought out. So this is another reason why a DAO is so important and a good way to do it. This can't be bought out easily. Well, it can't really be because you'd have to buy it from everyone who, who has a governance token and buy it off them and, and try to accumulate more and more. However, because of our voting, um, the, the formula for voting, the more tokens you have, the lower impact more tokens have on your voting power. So even if you accumulate loads of them, you don't have all the votes. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to take over and control and, and then try to abuse for your own benefit and, and you know, shut it all down effectively. Um, but yeah, this is the sort of first protocol of its kind, or at least that I know of that has, you know, there's a couple out there which has some real world impact, but this is certainly the first on the financial uh, sector um, that really has some uh, real world impact. Plus, it's not supported by hype. At least, you know, the hype comes fine, you know, the price of the token does whatever it wants um, when hype's there. And most protocols in the crypto space, they're, they're pretty much supported by hype alone and just people just wanting to speculate and buy into it. Um, our project is, is actually supported and backed by real world cash flows because it's a real world business model. It's generating returns. Those, the DAO owns um, the shares in the banks. The DAO owns securities. The DAO is entitled to those returns that the bank makes. And therefore, the project is supported by those real world cash flows. So anyone listening to this, um, how can they follow? You said it, obviously it's not trading publicly yet. So how can they follow what you're doing? And and if they want to be involved, how can they get involved? Or think about yeah, getting Yeah. Um, yeah. So the first point of call, I'd say go to our website, which is ValhallaNetwork.io. Um, and that has the white paper on there, has all the team and advisor information on there. Uh, we some, we've got some really great advice on board. Obviously, Richard's in the team and he's sort of the, the most important person and, and biggest uh, character involved. But the advisory board is, is really second to none. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, so I'd say go there to start with and, and you know read through the white paper and see what we're up to. Um, and then the second point of call would be Twitter, which is Valhalla, uh, Valhalla DAO. So uh, Valhalla D-A-O and then underscore. Um, and you know we've got at the moment about 350 followers, so not a huge following at the moment. Um, and and yeah, and if anyone has any questions or, or wants to get in touch, they're, they're more than welcome to then contact me um, by you know trying to find out my details, which is on my website actually. So it's not too difficult. <laughs> Don't make it difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it was originally, um, and then someone pointed out that that wasn't actually on there my my email. So I, I took out there to make it slightly easier for people to uh, get in touch if they wanted. <laughs> so you're a busy man. So obviously you've got this, which is like. Um, you know, huge amounts of work, but you're also mm -hmm. building towards putting that credit creation model of Richard Werner into an actionable thing for investors too, which is separate to the Valhalla network. Do you want to touch a little bit about that as well? Sorry, just to clarify, are you talking about local first? I was talking about Profit Research Center. Oh, sorry, sorry, I was really confused. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. So that's a that's a project that's still ongoing. Um, 
really keen to start that up. And um, we decided that we might change the name um, from Profit Research Center to Werner Economics um, to make it more sort of personable and, and friendly to the retail. Um, in fact, we spoke about that before. Um, Richard's original PRC, Profit Research Center, was aimed at institutional investors. Um, you know, investors like Peter Thiel were buying his research. Um, and very different scene, very different marketing um, and, and directed towards different people. So we're now starting up this retail financial advisory firm, um, which we are going to call Werner Economics. Um, and it will offer effectively this package that institutional hedge funds and et cetera used to buy at a much cheaper rate, much more affordable rate. It will also have Richard doing sort of weekly podcasts, um, short podcasts where he gives his opinion on different, you know, areas of the market, what's going on, what he thinks the market's doing, um, and also some sort of seminars and, and conferences that we'll eventually put on as well. Um, but yeah, so that, that should be coming as well in the next couple of months. But it's quite full-time, like you said, at the moment, especially going for a fundraise. It's always full-time when you go for a fundraise. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm excited for both projects, actually. And, and if you're listening to this, um, just from my view, Richard Wern is one of the few people worth listening to in financial markets. Um, and I, as I said, I've read all. I've got all these books here. I've read all these books, and and so I'm I'm thrilled to see what what could happen there. All right, so we've summed up what you're doing with Valhalla and and where you might go down down the thing. So if you're listening and you're interested, definitely start following uh, this project. It's a good way to get into crypto too, actually, because it shows you why. Because I mean, crypto is criticised by many people for you know being this fluffy thing that they don't understand. It's speculation, da da da. But it does show yep. to me, I think, where this new asset class can can take new industries and remold them and reshape them and and do something even better than than what's out there now. So it's really cool. So thanks for coming on, mate. And um, no worries. As you progress, uh, let's keep updating the story and and like especially when you come up to the what did you call it the token generation event? That sounds very cool. And yeah, we'll see where the project is. Awesome. Awesome. I would say, you know, if anyone isn't involved in crypto, always be a little bit wary because, uh, <laughs> um, in fact, quite a few investors that we've got coming in haven't been involved in crypto at all. They, they want to see it come to fruition just because um, it's still, you know, the team are in control in the early phase. We've decided to go through a sort of fully regulated bank governance structure. So, for example, we have a separate independent committee that will decide on, on all the salaries, et cetera. Um, so we're not- Are you the head of, of that committee? That. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, Richard is. And then we've got two uh, independent advisors. Um, and then none of us vote on our own sort of contract, et cetera. So it's all quite a bank sort of oriented governance structure. Um, many protocols don't have that. Um, and you hear of things called rug pulls, which give crypto a bad name. But- the actual distributed ledger technology, what it enables is, is beautiful, really. And, it, you know, it's a fantastic thing. It's just been in other protocols. It's, it's not always been used for, for good. Um, and just be wary of that is that, you know, there's some protocols out there which you certainly need to be looking carefully at. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think this is probably the strength of your project that you have a man of Richard Werner's credibility. Mm. Uh, you know, he's not going to be involved in anything that's done. So that's a, a massive asset for you. All right, mate. Thank you for coming on. And awesome. as I said earlier, we'll, we'll, we'll follow up with you in about six months. Yeah, awesome, Callum. Cheers, Matt. Take care.